we have a lot of clients that do this that you know they sell something for 10 million you know like a pharmacy or or whatever you know a little shopping center and they find something they like for, for five million but then they've got five million more and they'll just put it into a few different vsts they'll come back and want more vsts on the next one because it's a it's a pretty pretty uh, easy experience just to get that check in the mail each month this is the real estate podcast a show by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs let's hear from our host Matt Taifke and Alex Kaufman. Everybody, welcome to the Real Estate Podcast. This is your co-host Alex Kaufman, and today we got a really special episode for you. Um, we have Peter Roberts, brother to Andrew Roberts, and if you don't know who Andrew Roberts is, this is the guy who puts all this magic together for you. He is our marketing guru, and his brother Peter Roberts comes on he talks about you know what he's doing in the 1031 game he specializes in dsts and we dive into what's possible how you can utilize this as a passive investment and utilizing this as a great option for people who are needing to 1031 into a great real estate investment make sure you sit back relax and enjoy all right guys let's talk about today's sponsor Glenn LeBlanc and Supreme Lending have been serving the Austin market for 20 plus years. They are a local lender with in-house underwriting, so you're kept in the loop every step of the way. Whether you're doing a cash out for home repairs or a first time home buyer, Glenn makes the lending process smooth and easy to navigate. Always available and able to educate buyers along the way. Choose a local lender when buying your next home. Call 512-672-9472 anytime. And if you say you heard this ad on our podcast, Glenn will refund your appraisal if you use him. Definitely reach out to Glenn. Glenn is a personal friend of ours. The link to his website is in the description below. Now back to the episode. Thanks for coming, man. We appreciate you coming on our show. How are you doing today? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan. I've been watching you guys and learning from you. I really like what you do how you do it. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're excited. Uh, you know, we're excited to learn a little bit from you today and our listeners as well. Um, you're kind of in the, the line of the DST uh, and we got those books that you sent us, but uh, so appreciate that. Great. And to back up, man, we'd love to kind of hear um, kind of how you got to the point where you're at today. I know you had a uh, lawn business back in the day and we're getting after it. And uh, now you're doing some DST stuff, but we'd love to kind of run through your background and how you got to where you are today. And then along the way, we'll probably ask you some questions and, and see how we can add value for our listeners. Sure, sure. Yeah, I just want to start off by saying I feel like we're all brothers from other mothers. I mean, Andrew and I are literally brothers, but you guys, you know, I, I just want to say that, you know, I also drive a Prius. I don't want to be that. I don't want that to be the first thing people know about me, but I, it is now. <laughs> Let's go, baby. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> when I got it, I kind of got it for different reasons. I don't know. I, I, I was living in California when I got it, and we were driving. My family was driving back and forth to Texas at least once a year, and gas prices in California are twice what they are here. So it was kind of a an economic decision at that time. But when I got married, I had a. I was driving a truck 17 years ago, a pickup, and. We moved back to Texas here three years ago, and my wife, as soon as we got here, my wife says, I think now that we're back in Texas, we need to go back to a truck. So, Andrew's, the, uh, got, Andrew's got a truck, and my dad's got a truck, so I may maybe back in the pickup business soon. 
Is the Prius white? Yes, it's a white Prius. All right. Come on, baby. (laughs) I thought I was doing something like special when I got it. And then I found out like right after I got it, that it was like the number one selling car in California, which is where I bought it. But probably not in Texas. I believe that Matt and I are kind of uh, outliers in the uh, in the Priuses, but we we, we kind of like it that way. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to it. But I don't see too many of my clients in person, so I don't I don't have to uh, worry about squeezing them into a little less footroom, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I had a I actually had a buddy, and he had a Range Rover, and he worked at a company called Endeavor, and his boss said. That that's a uh, I don't need your money car. He said, "Sell that car and go get something else." I was like, "That's that's an interesting perspective." Yeah, yeah. You don't want to look too comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Right on. So yeah, yeah man. So, I mean, Andrew's a Andrew's a brother to us as well. So you know that's that's mm-hmm. exciting that that you feel that way. And I know you uh, you've watched some of our videos, so we appreciate uh, the support over the years for sure. Yeah, I feel like the biggest difference between us might be that I grew up in South Austin. You guys are are North guys. You know, I consider you Northerners. But uh, when I was when I, when I was in college, Andrew and you know my mom and sister they moved up to Round Rock, so he he's from the North Side. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't even recognize. I don't recognize South Austin when I go back now. It's just there used to be fields, you know, between my my house and my high school, and it's developed. Always since. <laughs> so when when you were growing up, um, talk, let's let's talk about like um, what your what your business mind was. Did was was getting into the lawn business one of the first things you did, or um, yeah, you- but you know I didn't have great business acumen. I just I mean I I didn't mind working, and you know um, you know our parents expected us to kind of contribute, and so and there's things I wanted, you know, clothes, shoes um you know trips so i just um yeah junior high i uh, a friend you know an older friend one of my you know like a youth pastor at church you know he he had done a lawn business on the side for a long time so he gave me a few tips and i just started you know knocking on a few neighbors doors and down there uh, in shady hollow where I, I mostly lived in junior high and high school they had a neighborhood newsletter where you know if you were a kid you could get a free a free line in there, you know, for your landscaping or babysitting services. So by the time I was in college, you know, I had maybe, I don't know, 20 to 30 accounts. And uh, about two years into college, you know, I decided to, I was, a, I was in chemical engineering. So I got a, an opportunity to intern at the Motorola plant there. And uh, <laughs> to UT, right? And, uh, yes. Yeah. I went to UT. <laughs> and, uh, so I got an opportunity to intern at Motorola, and uh, so I, I realized, you know, I can't be, keep, keep up with these lawn accounts. So it, I just gave them to a friend. Like, I was just like, I can't take care of these lawns anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and I had a friend who, hey, you know, you mind? And so I, I realized that a few years after the fact, I probably could have sold all those accounts. Yeah. But uh, I, just, I just wasn't, you know, wasn't that concerned about it at that point. So I just helped out a friend. Yeah, it's that's uh, one of those things where you I can see how if you're just out there doing the work, you don't realize like you've created a value and you actually have a, a business you could potentially sell, and it just takes experience mm-hmm. and and kind of being around to to understand like 
one that you can sell it and then two like how to even put a price on it i mean it pr- probably right. could have been like a good amount of money i would imagine yeah. that's all good yeah. you know live and learn so you uh went through ut what, what happened after that yeah well that was kind of an adventure because you know i came in pre-med chemi and you know i was a big nerd in high school you know throughout school i just i mean i just loved to read and learn so you know, I had like a full academic ride as a National Merit Scholar. I did well enough on the SAT and PSAT. But then I just kind of crashed and burned academically. I just wasn't, the classes were not something that I was passionate about, you know. And I didn't have the study habits because I didn't need them to, 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 you know, be at the top of my class in high school. Um, so, yeah, two years of pre-med, chemi, then a year of journalism slash undeclared. And then I was like, I've been in school three years, you know, I need to get a degree. And uh, <laughs> uh, the quickest way to the door was an English degree. So I got a degree in English literature with a minor in Spanish. Just kind of thinking, you know, that, that's probably not going to be a career. Yeah, I could teach, could teach high school, but I'll, I'll just do grad school for something. I'll go to law school um, or, or do something, you know, um, become an academic. <laughs> but um, so I did, yeah, I, I finished, I spent five years at UT and came out with an English degree and uh, went to a, a Bible school out in California, a, a, a post-bachelor um, two-year program. And that was, that wasn't really, you know, like that, that program wasn't, isn't set up to be kind of like career oriented. It's not trying to produce people that are going, you know, going to become pastors or something. It's, it's just uh, something our my church offers, you know, to prepare folks in any walk of life to just kind of live it to the fullest according to, you know, their, their convictions. And, um, and so, but that kind of actually did open a a career, uh, a job opportunity for me. They also are a Christian publisher. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't, when I got that English degree, I didn't think I'd ever use it, but, uh, but they needed an editor. So I, I ended up uh, working full time as an editor and a writer for 15 years out in California wow. uh, here until 2018. I can only imagine. That was just, it was my dream job. Like I said, I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to reading, writing. It, it was funny. I thought I was taking the easy way out at UT when I switched to English. My, my engineering buddies were like, how do you read all those books and write all those papers? You know, and I'm like, this is, this is fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that was that was a great opportunity. I'll always treasure that, you know, and I might still be doing it, but my wife, you know, my family's mostly there in the Austin area. My wife's is mostly in she grew up in Mexico, but they're all in Houston. She's got four sisters, three sisters, all married with families and her parents, all here in the Houston area. So she was you know, for a while she was kind of hinting like, hey, when when do you think we might move back to Texas? Um, so we got to a point with my my previous job, you know, I finished a big project that I had been on for most of that time. And I just kind of felt like the time was right to, to turn the page and um, kind of start again here. So it was, it was a leap of faith, though, because, you know, well, while I was working there, they gave me the opportunity to go to grad school. So I did get a master's degree in history. I, I actually taught high school history for 10 years on a part-time basis. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. That was a blast. And that, that gave me the opportunity to kind of get out from behind my, my desk and interact with young people, you know, and um, I enjoyed it. 
That's cool, man. My uh, my college degree is in history. History, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So you were you were teaching while you were working at the uh, at the company when you're doing the publishing and editing. Yeah, and and writing full time, teaching part time, teaching one or two classes to like ninth and tenth graders. Um, so uh, it was it was great, you know. It's not everybody's favorite subject, but you know, if you're passionate about it, you can kind of keep their interest long enough. To, I told them like, hey, you know, if you don't if you don't take the AP test now, you're just gonna have to take it when you get to college. <laughs> so if you really don't like it. Pay attention now. <laughs> I think I, I think that worked. I think there's parts of history that everybody can enjoy. I'm sure everybody doesn't always enjoy reading about every or learning about every part of history. But for me, I've been watching uh, Mayan and uh, you know um, documentaries about the old empires and the Egyptians and everything uh, on YouTube at night recently. That's cool. Yeah, my my thought is if you don't like history. You just haven't been around the right person to kind of just like you, you know, the way that it's, it's a story and it's fascinating. I mean, it to me, it really clicked when I had a certain teacher in college and this guy was obsessed with it and he was so passionate that it just kind of wore off on, on me as well. Are you able to talk yeah. about, um, the, uh, the project you worked on for 15 years at the, sure. uh, yeah, it was it was just basically one author. You know, he wasn't really an author. He was a speaker. He was a Christian speaker that he came from China. Uh, you know, when the communist uh, when the civil war there happened and the communist party took over, you know, he he was working closely with some other Chinese Christians and and you know ministering there to Christians in China in the 1940s, 50s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Civil war happened. Talk about history. And um, he at that time, you know, they sent him out to Taiwan, which is where, you know, um, kind of the, the losing side of that civil war went, you know, um, and from Taiwan, after about 10 years in Taiwan, you know, he continued to a, a Christian ministry there in Taiwan in the 50s, and then in 62, um, and, and he, he was a close co-worker with someone named Watchman Nee, a lot of Christians, might, uh, more Christians have heard of Watchman Nee, because some of his books that came to America and to the West back then in the 60s and 70s uh, caught the attention of, um, you know, some young Christians, uh, you know, in the English speaking world at that time. Uh, but but this, uh, this, this guy's name, his English name is Witness Lee. And so he came to the States in 62. And so from 62 until he passed in the, in the 90s, you know, he just spoke and spoke and spoke um, to Christian groups around the country and um and so a lot of that was published as as he spoke it you know he spoke uh, different kind of lines you know he would like study you know the bible book by book and that was published as it was coming out but some of it you know was just kind of like more you know an after an afterward to another meeting you know or a, you know a small sermon here and there that wasn't really part of a group that would have been published at that time and so i kind of came behind and and picked up all those bits and pieces so we could publish what we call the collected works of witness lead. Um, so, it, I mean, so I'm taking, what I did was I took, you know, a spoken sermon and the way you speak, you know, I feel like it was almost like translating because the way we speak, if we just put it down on paper, you know, it doesn't, the grammar doesn't always work, you know, and we do repeating and things like that. So 
Um, I just polished his speaking was primarily what I did, but I got to do some, re and there's research involved in that too, because, you know, everything, you know, that's factual, you know, or based in scripture or some other Christian writings needs to be confirmed. But they also publish a, a scholarly journal called Affirmation and Critique that I got to write some book reviews and historical articles for that. So that was, that was a lot real enjoyable too. That's really cool. Uh, I mean, I feel like, you know, most people probably don't get to work on projects for, for that long, I would imagine, in, you know, most situations. And so I think that's, that's really mm -hmm. interesting. And so yeah. when you moved from uh, California to back to Houston, um, is this when you started uh, looking for a new job or um, and specifically in real estate or, or kind of how did uh, the transition into the real estate industry happen? Yeah, it was around that time just before the move when I, you know, I knew the move was coming and I, you know, I'd asked my employer, hey, can I continue doing something for you guys from Houston? And that, that just didn't work out. So I was just wide open. I wasn't looking for real estate. I was looking for anything, you know, that I could, I could do a good job at, you know, and support my family, basically. That was my criteria, you know. And um, I kind of thought my fallback would be, and probably still is, you know, teaching, you know, because I have the English degree, the history degree, and I enjoy working with, with young people, you know. Um, but, you know, I just said, let me just knock on some doors and see what opens, you know. <clears throat> and um, a good friend of mine from church, um, he he's had he he's the you know i'm working for his company now you know just in like our families you know we have our kids are the same age our wives are good friends so just you know in crossing paths with him i just said i just bounced it off of him i didn't ask him for a job i just said hey do you have any suggestions on you know my next career because <laughs> you know he's got exposure to you know he he built up and started out in accounting built up an accounting practice and that's kind of what you know through the, the 1031 side of things, kind of what led him into this industry that we'll get to. But, you know, he's had exposure to all, through his clients, you know, to all kinds of um, businesses and industries. So I just kind of, you know, bounced it off of him. What do you think I, I should do? And it, it turned out that right at that time, he was um, publishing this book that I sent you guys. And then there was going to be a, you know, a lot of advertising that accompanied that. And so he, he was anticipating a, a huge influx of new leads, you know, the interest generated from the publication of the book and the accompanying advertising. So he needed to bring on a couple of new reps. And I said, well, I mean, I, I see why you need somebody, but I'm not, I'm not the right one. <laughs> I don't have the background and um, I'm not like a sales, selling anything I, would be my last choice. <laughs> You know, I just don't, I don't like to push people and um, I don't like to be pushed. You know, <laughs> I don't like people to sell me things. And so I don't want to do that to the other people. Um, but, you know, he, I, I, I was already familiar some with, with the, you know, with the product. And so I realized, you know, for the right kind of client, the right kind of investor, you know, everybody says this thing sells itself, but this one really, really does, you know, um, and and so it's more a matter of I I kind of see it in line with education. You know, I I was a teacher for ten years, and I feel like you know my job is to educate the client and um, and let and lay it out for them, and they make it, they make the call. You know, just like I assume you know Arthur would do um, in terms of helping somebody that's looking for a house or any kind of real estate. That's awesome. 
Uh, and it, that's a really cool kind of introduction into the world of real estate. Um, do you mind if we talk about selling here for a second from someone who, you know, uh, like you said, you know, you, you weren't a salesman previously and you didn't want to sell anybody anything and you don't personally like being sold anything either. And I think it's important for uh, a lot of our listeners and anybody in general in business um, to understand that you not not only is sales extremely important to to a business, right? That's where your your revenue is generated from. However, uh, when you're truly believing in the product and you're truly adding value to your customers, or if you're truly educating your customers, like you are in your case, it's not hard selling it, right? Especially if it's a good product or service because it sells itself. But um, if you truly believe in it, it's not. I wouldn't think that it's uncomfortable being in that position, uh, trying to get somebody to, uh, you know, take your product or service. It's almost as if you didn't push them to, to move forward with your service or product. You'd be doing them a disservice because you know, it'll help them so much. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and our business model, you know, even more, you know, we're not just knocking on cold doors. I mean, I respect that. You know, the, I see the hustle you guys do, but you know, We've got, you know, 90 something percent of our new leads come in from folks that find our, our website and they um, and they register and they're like, hey, you know, and some for some of them, they don't know what it is. And I had, you know, pretty early in the conversation, we realized, OK, this isn't isn't the right fit for you. It's not suitable, you know, but uh, but but they want to know they're asking us to call them. Um, and so it's it's nice to. To not have to kind of approach somebody out of the blue as well. Right, for sure. I think uh, I think everybody gets a you know a little uncomfortable with that, uh, with the cold yeah. contacts. Um, so with with what y'all are doing there, um, do you mind elaborating a little bit on on um, is it ten thirty warning and with the DSTs right? And uh, yeah, hey Peter, cool. real quick, can you yeah. hold that book back up one more time so um, so everyone can see it? We'll get Andrew to uh, put a link because uh, it's available on. Cool, man. Yeah. And, and, and we got that same book. So yeah, just to like, just to back up, like what, what is a, what is a DST? Like talk to us like we don't know anything and kind of what, what value you do present and, and how you would pitch it to clients. We, we want a little sure. here. So to like, to transition from my personal story to this product, to, to take this job on, I, you know, I had to first be licensed as a general securities registered representative. So that means taking the series seven exam with FINRA and then the series 63 for the state, the same licensing at the state level. So that was, that, this is the Kaplan version of, of the series seven book. <laughs> I don't know what, 700 pages. So that was, I mean, and, you know, I love to learn anything new. And so that was, I, I had a blast, you know, with the challenge of just kind of learning to think like a securities broker, you know, all that stuff. Um, but it really is a niche product. You know, what we deal with um, is not, is something that, you know, again, 90, high 90s a percent of, of stockbrokers have never even heard of, or if they, if, or, or financial advisors, they might have like one of these products on the side in case one of their clients, you know, is, is in a 1031 and they want to give them something 
but it's really our our specialty our niche and um yeah so dst is delaware statutory trust and like i said my boss you know he started this business 17 years ago out of his tax practice um and so there's this is kind of this unique overlap of of uh, tax law real estate and securities um so you guys are familiar with 1031 like-kind exchange you sell sell something um sell a real estate investment um, and not your primary residence but something else that has you know significant appreciation if you cash out on that you're going to be paying a, a, a big chunk of money to the government in capital gains tax so you can defer that by doing you know executing a 1031 exchange um, which is you know by definition buying like-kind replacement property and it has to be of equal or greater value, right? So you can't go down in equity or in debt. There's the, the double kind of requirement there. Um, so the debt on your replacement property, if you have debt, if you haven't paid off what you're selling, you need to match the debt as well. Um, so, and you know, for probably most real estate investors that they're gonna go into the same kind of property. So one rental property, you 1031 into another. And of course, this doesn't work on the model of flipping, you know, as Andrew learned, you know, because it's there's the long the difference between the long term, you know, and then the, the, the shorter holds. The Real Estate Podcast is sponsored by Doyen Inspections. Doyen is a team of female professional home inspectors that serve the greater Austin area. Whether you are buying a resale, building a new home, or about to list your home for sale, the ladies at Doyen Inspections can inspect your home. They provide a color-coded and thorough inspection report full of images, videos, and explanations. Visit Doyen, that is D-O-Y-E-N-N-E, inspections.com for more information or give them a call at 512-655-9940 now back to the episode one of the nice things one of the advantages is the debt is built into it like these structures are already set up where you've got an apartment complex you know multi-family property that's already got you know typically something around 50 percent leverage and so you the investor would put in um the, the proceeds from their sale. So let's say they sold something for 150,000. I mean, probably nothing in Austin sells that low anymore, but sell something for 150,000. And I have to say before we go any further that because these, these DSTs are, are uh, regulated as private placement securities, that they're only available to accredited investors. So you gotta have a million in net worth, excluding your primary residence, for um, 200,000 annual income for an individual, 300 for a couple. And that's primarily because these are, you know, the government, the regulators, uh, you heard that bird screaming in the other room? <laughs> yeah, but it's all right. It's kind of a zoo here. My kids and wife are all animal lovers, which I guess is why they like me, but. Um, <laughs> right. So the, the regulators, you know, FINRA, the SEC, they, they categorize this, um, these DSTs um, as illiquid investments because you know, there's not an active secondary market. So if you invest in one today, you couldn't sell it tomorrow. Um, and and we, we don't present it that way. Um, but because of primarily because of the illiquidity and lack of investor control during the hold period, 
which can be up to 10 years, um, they consider it illiquid. And because it's illiquid, they don't want folks putting, you know, all their, you know, net worth into it that they may need for something else, you know, some other, you know, life event or, um, you know, they just need to supplement their income or something. So real, real, investors only. Can I yeah. can I ask a question real quick? So these the the DSTs that you are selling, um, basically the way that it would look, uh, these are trusts, essentially they're funds, I guess, right? That these investors are ten thirty one uh, into. Um, so like if Matt and I went and sold, you know, an apartment complex that we have, and we wanted ten thirty one, we contact you and. Uh, you know, assuming everything works out, um, straight out of closing, we can invest in this, uh, DST, which would be, you know, uh, a fund that contains real estate that would match the same criteria that, that we need to meet for our 1031. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it's not a fund, but it, it behaves similar to a fund in many ways. It's syndicated real estate, which you guys know, fractional ownership. Um, but because, because it's a you know you're technically you're buying a beneficial interest in this trust it's passive it's it's it has to be passive um you know there's there's kind of a set of rationale why the irs will consider one of these dsts as qualified for 1031 and why they won't do that for reits you know some people hear it and they say oh it's like a reit well a reit doesn't qualify for 1031 exchange um but but REIT's a trust, and this is a trust, so there is some similarity there. Um, similar, you know, s same kind of analogy with a fund. It's syndicated real estate, um, but it's uh, it, it's technically it's a trust, and um, and it's securitized. And there's you know a benefit, you know, there's that kind of adds some hurdles and some barriers, you know, like accreditation. But the benefit of being a security is full disclosure. You know, there's regulation and compliance, and it's just you know, there has to, every offering has to have all these things built into it. You know, third party legal opinion, tax opinion, environmental studies, all this is done packaged as part of the deal and fully disclosed in this like 300 page private placement memorandum that you have to receive in order to be technically, you know, offered um, and, you know, to purchase a beneficial interest in one of these. So there's full disclosure, you know, there's, there, and not just on the property itself, but on, the manage you know, the the, um, the sponsor the the company that that puts these together and sells them is called the sponsor and uh, the, these sponsor companies are big real estate companies and and, and some of them you know do a, a lot more than DSTs um, Cantor Fitzgerald out of New York um, and you know there's there's others um, and some just focus on DSTs but there's you know there's full disclosure and due diligence on them on their track records on their principles. So, you know, some folks, it's like, who am I, you know, I, you know, the, the issue of control, you know, that can go either way. Some, a lot of people, you know, at, in, at, like in your stage and, you know, the, probably most of the, the viewers of this webcast, you know, they're starting out and they want control and, you know, and they, and that's great. You know, that's the way to do it at that stage. But a lot of, of our investors are like retirement age. They've been managing, you know, a portfolio of 30 50 rental properties for decades, you know, maybe 40 years, and they're ready to step back and um, not, you know, not have to deal with tenants and trash and maintenance anymore. So they want something passive. They want to 
1031 qualify and they want it to continue to cash flow and of course potentially appreciate. Um, and so that's kind of what the DST offers in a nutshell to accredited investors. What does the market look like as far as available options? I mean, these are funds, right? So I'm trying to understand um, at any given time, there's a, there's a certain amount of open funds and then they close and then now you're set and then there's new ones coming. I mean, are there hundreds right. of these things or what does it look like? It's more like dozens. Um, dozens. You know, and they're different. There's different asset class. Yeah, I would say nationally there's 30, maybe about 30 open at any given time. And it fluctuates. You know, the market tightened up at the beginning of the pandemic. There wasn't a lot of new product coming on because lending froze for a little bit. But, you know, most most times, including now, there's, you know, 20 to 30 available offerings. And they're different sizes and, you know, and different asset classes. So I would say about half of them are in multifamily and there'll be like one one apartment complex. Some are two or three apartment complexes. And so, and others, other examples are medical office buildings, industrial buildings, you know, distribution warehouses for large, you know, internet um, retailers. There's retail portfolios where you can get like, you know, 15 um, Walgreens, um, you know, dollar, dollar generals, those type of things. So it's, it's all different shapes and sizes. And um, depending on the, the depending size of it, the equity raise is going to be limited. You know, it's it's not open ended where they can keep adding on properties. You know, like a REIT would do. But it's you're investing in that particular property or set of properties. Let's say it's an apartment complex that's you know worth forty million. Twenty million of it is finance. Twenty million of it, um, probably more like twenty one or twenty two million of it will be the equity raise. Um, that'll come in from investors. And so that, that can happen. That equity raise can get taken up if it's an attractive offering or if inventory is otherwise low, that can go in a, in a week or two on the short end or you know six months on the long end. But usually it's somewhere two to three months of availability of any particular DST um, until, until it's filled up. So does it have to be done by a large company or could, could Alex and I start a, you know, apartment syndication and, and, you know, get it to, um, you know, meet the requirements for a DST or what it, do you know what that looks like? I'm, I'm not super familiar. I haven't been involved in, you know, putting one together. You know, I kind of look, see them after the fact, after they're produced, I do see new companies coming online. You know, we deal, we're the broker, you know, so, uh, we just, look at what's available and um, due diligence it. We have a team of back office, our, our broker dealer, which is Wellforged Securities, that due diligence these things and then decide, can we approve it? Is it, you know, is it likely to be suitable for at least one of our clients? Um, but that being said, you know, besides the, the big long-term, you know, history companies I see doing this, there's new ones coming online with some regularity, um, but it's it's there is going to be some some uh, considerable work in kind of establishing the distribution of it, um, you know, with different you know because like I said, it's a security, so you don't have to be a securitized uh, you know a company in the securities business. You can just be a real estate business, but to distribute it, you have to go through the securities channel. It has to be distributed by broker dealers. Got it. Yeah, the, the, balance, 
the value that I see with it is once you do the 1031, you've got that quick time frame, and, you know, you might be forced to overpay for real estate because everyone wants to sell to a 1031 buyer. And if you couldn't find, you know, it just depends. I mean, some people want to keep it in real estate or, you know, buy the DST, which is still real estate, obviously, and probably a little bit less hands-on. But it's a, for me, it's, it's a great backup plan um, because you don't have to, you definitely, it seems like wouldn't be overpaying. Um, obviously, you got to get in yeah. with the right people and, and make sure they got a good deal. Um, but basically, yeah. can you, if you're doing a 1031, could you, cause you have to go identify properties. Could you identify two properties and then one DST and then you, you vet out that timeline and then get a deal done depending on yeah. which one is the best? Yeah, for sure. The, uh, the downside to that would be, you know, if it's a hot, if it's a real attractive offering, you know, it, as a DST, it might only be available for a week or two. So you can identify it, but you might want to identify something that's going to be on the shelf a little longer if you're going to take that long to decide on what you're going to pull the trigger on. But yeah, as a backup option um, on, under the three property rule, it's, we, we, we get that a lot. Sometimes we'll get somebody that calls us and say, hey, I'm on di- day 44, you know, day 45 to identify. I need something. And, and we can get it. You know, we can't close in one day. We can close in a couple of days, but we can give them the assurance that this is, you know, we'll be able to close on this for you. And then, you know, I was just going to say, like, you know, from a, from a realtor's perspective, we hear from realtors all the time. And then they find out it's securities and we can't cut them in on, on any of the commission or anything unless they're licensed under the security, you know, under FINRA. So then we never hear from them again. But what I wanted to point out to you guys, three, three, thing, three words, inventory, inventory, inventory. Oh, there's, my, there's my sales pitch. Uh, <laughs> Because, you know, like I, I was watching your, uh, your webcast with the guy from Florida, Grant. And, uh, you know, you're talking to him about um, a multifamily property. I think you said it was near Barton Creek. Yeah. Barton Creek Mall. And so, you know, he pointed out, you know, the seller, you know, the owner, you know, like her problem is going to be the basis. You know, she's depreciated it down to nothing. The whole thing is going to be capital gains. Um, so as an older person, you know, she probably doesn't want to take on a new apartment complex. But you can, you can present this to her. You know, I know a guy that, that brokers these DSTs and, you know, you can, and you can, and the minimums on these are a hundred thousand, but you know, that's, that's negotiable. I, you know, if somebody sells a, a single family for, for under a hundred and they need a 1031 and we can, if they're an accredited investor, we can get them in. Um, but it gives them, it gives you the opportunity if you're coming in with a, a few hundred thousand or more, several million, which we get sometimes opportunity to diversify you know in, into a few different properties you can and you can diversify by asset class you can do some multifamily some retail some industrial you can diversify by by uh, leverage you know we do have some debt free offerings it's rare because you know most investors do have most 1031 folks need to have that debt requirement and you can always go up in leverage you just can't go down uh, but some people are debt free and just like I need I don't want to take on I don't want to invest in anything with leverage because that's just one more element of risk, right? Like if the property underperforms, then, and, and they can't, to the extent that they can't make the debt payment, then that's the, a big a risk, you know, um, that the bank could take it and you lose your principal. Can you explain but, the, uh, can you explain the debt portion real quick? Uh, saying you can go up, but you can't go down. Um, the debt aspect for the 1031. 
Yeah, well, I probably should have said I'm not an accountant, so I'm not uh, legally qualified to give tax advice. But uh, yeah, but the basics of the, the 1031, you know, or like I said at the beginning, you, know, you need to match the equity proceeds that you're getting from the sale. But, but overall, the big picture is you have to match the value of what you're selling. So if, you're, if you sell something for a, a million and five, 500,000 of it comes to you because that's what you put into it and 500,000 of it goes back to the bank, it's the value of the property was still a million. Your replacement property has to be a million. So that could be, if you could, you could add your own 500,000 to it. And, and, you know, I mean, you have your initial 500,000 in proceeds from the sale. If you have 500,000 more besides that, you need a place for it. Then you can go into a, you know, debt free on the next one. But one way or another, you need to obtain a property of equal equal or greater value on the on the other side of that exchange. And so typically that will be by matching, by putting in exactly what you have in proceeds and then matching or exceeding that the debt level. Um, and that's already built into these DSTs. So just to clarify, um, say we've got an, a, you know, a million dollar property. We have 500K in equity. We owe 500 to the bank. Uh, yeah. We sell that property. Uh, bank gets five, we get five, and then we go and buy another uh, million dollar property. We cannot put 400K down for that next million dollar property. We have to put that 500. If you want to fully your capital gains to, to, to execute a, a 1031, you, you need to put all 500 down. That you can do a partial 1031, but the IRS isn't generous. Like they don't say, okay, that, uh, that five, that hundred thousand, we're gonna say that was part of your basis. They're gonna say that hundred thousand that you took out in proceeds. They're gonna say that was. If you have a hundred thousand in gains, they're gonna say that's the hundred thousand that you took out was all gains. Um, and while we're on ten thirty ones, in case you know we go too far away from them, yeah, I just want to point out what you guys probably know, and that is that you can't. Those funds can't hit your bank account. They have to be held by a and. Uh, qualified intermediary, QI, or an accommodator. And that's some disinterested third party that'll, you know, they know how to, they know, they're the experts on 1031s. Um, and so they can also educate you. But you wanna have that lined up ahead of your sale if you're, if you're thinking about a 1031, because once those proceeds hit your bank account, then the government IRS is gonna want a piece of it. Let me ask one more question about this debt portion, uh, just to make sure I yeah. fully understand. So say we sell the million dollar property, same scenario, 500, 500. Uh, we want to go buy a $1.5 million property. Um, mm -hmm. We put, you know, the uh, 500 down on that one, but then our debt uh, to equity ratio, our LTV would, uh, it would increase at that point. Uh, and so that would not be allowable. No, it's perfectly allowable. You can go up. You just can't go down. Got it. Okay. So we, I guess we couldn't have, we couldn't buy something that we had, you know, 400,000 in debt. Cause we, we just had 500,000 in debt. Got it. Yeah. I think it's a really good option that I mean, a lot of people, what's that? The way to go down in debt is to add equity from outside of the sale, right. you know? Right. But that's not we don't want to do that. We want to use that to buy more properties. Exactly. Or more exactly. <laughs> yeah.
Um, yeah, man, not a lot of people talk about it and it's, uh, it's good to, to get on here and share what it is. I think it's a, it is a big value and you need, you need someone like you to help broker the deal, uh, in order to get into a DST. What are ways that you guys, uh, you know, try to get in front of clients or, or ways that we can help you moving forward with this? Yeah. Well, one more thing, and this kind of relates to that, but also something we were talking about earlier, and that is, you know, the way to use one of these for, you know, a lot of people like you or that you do business with, besides a backup plan, it, it's also a great way, like if your replacement property, like Alex has been talking about, like, let's, let's say you found the perfect replacement property that you want and you got a great deal on it. You sold something for a million, the replacement property is only 900,000. Let's say you're going down. Then you got a hundred thousand. Yep, I know what you're we saying. You're gonna use, you can you can use the hundred for the DST. Got it. Yeah, that's great you because you could get a you could be getting a really good deal on something, and not be forced to overpay and throw the extra in the DST. That's awesome. This episode is brought to you by House Max Funding. House Max is one of the fastest growing hard money lenders in America, specializing in loans that provide you the cash needed to fund flips buying holds and ground up construction projects house max gives you the ability to compete with all cash buyers and increase your velocity by closing in seven to ten business days if you're looking for cheap hard money and a relentless originator who will make sure your deal gets funded call or text bryce tennyson today 512-627-6192 bryce is a great friend of ours he actually funds all of our hard money uh, loans and uh, he'll get the job done for you uh, so make sure you give him a call. Back to the episode. We have a lot of clients that do this that, you know, they sell something for 10 million, you know, like a pharmacy or, or whatever, you know, a little shopping center and they find something they like for, for 5 million, but then they've got 5 million more and they'll just put it into a few different DSTs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they'll, they'll come back and want more DSTs on the next one because it's a, it's a, pretty pretty uh, easy experience just to get that check in the mail each month is there a reason but, somebody um, is there a reason somebody would buy a dst and not be doing a 1031 just to just to own the dst yeah that does happen um i mean mo- most of our clients are in 1031s but um you know it's real estate it's securitized it's passive and so um especially some folks that have Typically, they'll come in through a 1031 on their first purchase, but they just kind of like the experience enough and the, they get to know the, the sponsor companies and us, the brokers, that they're just comfortable um, enough to like just if they have some, some extra equity to invest from, from anything else that they'll, they'll put some more in. You don't have to be in a 1031. And we actually have other offerings besides DSTs that are, that are actually funds. Um, but still, you know, have the securities kind of oversight on them uh, that are not 1031 investments. And we, and we broker some, some REITs too, some private REITs. Um, opportunity Zone, I don't know if you're familiar with the Opportunity Zone legislation. We yeah, have opportunity we, zone funds. yeah, we know about Opportunity Zone and uh, Opportunity City, Austin, yeah, Texas. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> double, double opportunity there. So we, yeah, we broker some opportunity zone funds as well. Um, that's a, so, that's interesting, man. I think, you know, we got, we got two goals here, Alex. One is we got to invest in a DST one day 
And the other one, we got to sell a property to a DST. Start a DST. Start a DST. That's the third goal. We know. We know. We know a good. We know a good broker. Yeah. There we go. I can help you bring in the uh, the investors' equity. Um, but yeah, I mean, at, at your stage, you know, you know, folks like you know in their twenties and thirties that are just getting into real estate. You know, you can with the hustle that I see you guys putting in and preaching. You know, you can probably you know earn a higher a higher uh, return. Um, you know, by putting in that sweat that sweat equity. But um, yeah, for the right kind of, uh, and not all our investors are retired. Some are young and they just kind of came into some property either through their investments or you know, they inherited it. And it's like, uh, of course, when you inherit it, it's a stepped up basis. So if you sell it soon enough, you don't have to deal with the 1031 requirement. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's another advantage of the DST. It's the same kind of stepped up basis when it passes to the heirs. Um, so, um, but yeah, for those, for those folks, either retirees that want, you know, less, more time for their grandkids or golfing or fishing or, or a young professional that's kind of just realized that, you know, that hustle game that real estate takes isn't, is just, isn't their cup of tea. And this is a, a good option to, um, exit left and, you know, without the tax consequences and continued cash flow, continued appreciation. And that creates inventory for you guys. You know, it's so tight there. I mean, I'm looking for a house here in the Houston area. And, it, and you know, my kids like their school, so I don't have a real broad geographic <laughs> net. And it's like two houses, three houses, you know, that, that are in the district, you know, that meet our criteria that are in the district. Uh, but I know like, yeah, in Austin, I, I mean, nationally, I think right now inventory is low. It is. So it doesn't hurt to let, to just take the sale part of it, you know, as a real, as a realtor to take the sale part of the transaction and, and use that to serve the interest of your client. If they're looking for something more passive, like a DST, and then that creates inventory for your buyers. Yeah, it's a, it's a tool. It's another tool. I, I see the value in it. Um, especially in the, in the idea that you said that you can use only a portion because then you're just not mm -hmm. forced to go spend it all on certain deals. Yeah, and you can you can do more than three properties with the identification. Of course, if you close before 45 days, which we encourage, you know, folks that are already committed to DSTs, you know, it's like let's not wait 45 days. Let's let's buy it, and you know, we can close in a week on a DST, and then you don't have the identification is done. But um, but for folks that are getting close to the 45 days, there's you know also two other rules: the 95% rule, percent rule. So. If you're, if you're dealing with a larger number of properties, the 1031 can accommodate that as well in terms of, you know, diversifying out from, from what you're selling, selling one property and going into several. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Peter, maybe one day you'll help us start the uh, TRE DST. That's what I'm thinking about. Awesome. Is, there, uh, awesome. is there anything that you, uh, anything else that you want to touch on or any, uh, anything you want to talk about that, um, or, or needs that you may have for us or for our listeners that we can help out with? No, I don't think so. I mean, I could, I could dive into the weeds as deep as anybody would like, but I think this is good for an introduction for somebody that's hearing about it for the first time. And anybody that wants more information can reach me. Um, I, I'll give Andrew the link to our, our company's website. And again, the book, our book is great. You know, other, 
um, other brokers use this to educate their their new reps that are coming in to, to the DST industry. So that's a, the book's a great resource. Our website has a lot of educational material on it. And then we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll give you a call or shoot you an email um, anytime anybody wants more information. Right on, man. And um, you still out there, still out there running, getting ready for any more uh, marathons coming up? Oh, man, I'm trying. I got a half marathon in two weeks here, week and a half. But I don't know if I'm ready for it. <laughs> so who 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 can officially who can run further? You or Andrew? Is he there? We can't say. Just give an honest answer. Okay. You know. Uh, and who's faster? I, <laughs> I I always think it's me. You know, I'll I'll take anybody. But you know, my son my son is about to turn 15 this month, and. I'm, I'm nervous that he's about, my son's about to pass me. I'm sure Andrew probably could too. So, so you're saying, you're saying you're not even, you're not even worried about your son beating Andrew. <laughs> well, Andrew's, Andrew's problem is he's just got too many muscles. You know, muscles slow you down when you're <laughs> so, I mean, I wish I, I wish I had muscles, but since I don't have muscles, you know, I just, I use my, well, what used to be my lightness to go faster. <laughs> That's awesome. Now man. I've got like, Instead of a six pack, I have a keg now. So that's my, that's my fuel though. You know, that's, that's for the really long run. Yeah. We can't all be like Andrew. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it guys. I had a blast. Um, yeah, man. Thank you for your time. How, how can, uh, I guess we'll, we'll just put your notes in the, or your uh, info in the show notes so they can get a hold of you, but you're here to help people with, with DSTs if they're doing 1031s and um, we'd love to stay in touch yeah. and, and appreciate you coming on the the real estate podcast and one day tre dst baby thank you peter all right let's go man thank you